So we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, we are still in John chapter 1, and we're going to get through not quite all of it today, and Tyson will, will wrap us up in John chapter 1 next week. But this is a good, good passage, John the Baptist. So we're going to start in verse 19, and I'm going to read down through verse 34. The words will be up on the screen behind me as well. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then? They asked, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as the Isaiah the prophet said. Now when they had been sent from the Pharisees, or sorry, they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John asked, answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. And I didn't know him, but he, sent, he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth, that your word is life. I pray that as we hear these words, that you would give us the grace to believe that they are true, to believe that your words are good, that your words are life, and that your words would change us from the inside out. You would cause us to have faith and trust in Jesus. You would cause our faith and our hope and our joy to deepen as a result of your truth. And we thank you again, and we ask you to do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I watched a fair bit of TV. Um, I watched a lot of police and legal shows. Um, I don't know if that was normal. It was just a thing in our family. Um, I even wanted to be a lawyer for a short time. The one job I never wanted, though, was I never wanted to be a judge. I didn't want to be a judge for a couple of reasons. One, because I didn't really feel like I could carry the weight of someone's fate in my hands. But then the second reason is that I thought to be a judge, you kind of had to be like really loud and roll your eyes a lot, like Judge Judy on TV, and that's not my style, so here I am. Um, in the Bible, there's an entire book in the Old Testament called Judges, and the judges were for a time God appointed leaders of Israel, but the identity of the most famous judge in all the Bible um, might surprise you. And I want to call as my evidence Psalm 82, verses 1 and 8, where we read this. God stands in the, in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. 
Rise up, God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. So, so the most famous, most important, central judge in all of the Bible is God himself. He is the judge who presides not over any human court, but over the divine court that will judge all people and all nations and all spiritual beings. Paul puts it this way in Romans 14. He says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. And if that's true, then it would be really helpful, at least I think so, it would be really helpful to know how each of us is going to be judged by God. As in, when God looks at you and me, by what standard will you be or I be deemed good enough or not good enough? The Gospel of John is actually full of courtroom language. Um, And the reason for that goes back to John's purpose for writing that we talked about the very first week. If you want to remember that purpose, it's it's in chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. He says, says, but these things are written. Here's why I'm writing. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So when you think about that day in the future when you or, and I or, or anybody you know is going to be standing before the judge of the universe, here is the question that you will be asked. What did you do with Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God? Who did you believe him to be? And how did your life reflect what you really believe about Jesus? The Gospel of John is all about convincing people like us that they've gotten it wrong. They've gotten Jesus wrong. He knows that most people who are reading his Gospel, most people in the world, will have seen, looked at Jesus, if they've seen him at all, and they see him as just another man with a moral message who lived, who died, and one day will be forgotten. But John knows differently. He believes differently, that Jesus is so much more than that. He knows that Jesus, yes, is a man like us in every way, but that he is also fully God, the Word who existed from the beginning. And Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man. He was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's people's hopes and dreams that he will come and set the people free and once again bring them into the promised land just like Moses did all those years ago. And John knew all of this because he walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He knew what Jesus' voice sounded like when he was preaching. He saw his miracles with his own eyes. He knew that how he treated his closest friends. He, he, he saw him walking and talking both before and after he died. And now he wants you and me to believe in Jesus while you still have time, before you stand before the judge of the universe. And John's particular method of convincing his readers that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God. He's not flippant about it. He's very intentional. He's like a good lawyer. He's going to make the case with evidence for us that not only is Jesus who he said he was, the world is guilty, in fact, of rejecting him. The world stands condemned for rejecting him. But that's not what John wants. That's not what God wants. 
That's why he says there's still time to repent, to, to change your mind about Jesus, to not only have the charges against you dropped, but to be awarded eternal life. Jesus, um, as, as we continue on in, in John, he wants us to see Jesus and he wants us to see him by listening to the eyewitnesses. He wants you to consider the evidence for yourself. You be the judge before it's time to face the judge. Is he really the Son of God? Is he the promised Messiah? Is he worthy of your total trust and devotion? Is, if believing in Jesus and following him means losing things, if it means losing respect, losing money, losing opportunities, losing relationships, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Is the life worth living really found by believing in a man who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago? John says yes. I say yes, but what do you say? That's the most important question that you can ask and answer. Who is Jesus? And in the passage we're looking at today, there's two basic truths that rise to the surface that I want to commend to you as we listen to the eyewitness testimony of John, not the writer of the gospel, but John the Baptist. First, if you want to be convinced... If you want to be convinced of who Jesus was and is, you first you've got to be curious. If you want to be convinced, you've got to be curious. And then second, if you want to be cured, if you want to be cured, you need the one who understands your disease. I'll explain what I mean by those in just a moment. Um, but what we're aiming for in this is, again, faith, that you might believe, and that by believing, you'd have life in his name. Uh, one of the better TV series, I believe, that's come out recently um, is called Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's about soccer, English soccer, and the funny differences between British and American culture. At the heart, it's, uh, the heart of the show is really about believing in the power of kindness. Um, there's some rough stuff in it, so I'm not recommending it to, to you from the front. You've got to be mindful of that. But one of the most memorable scenes and episodes from the show is in the first season where the title character, Ted Lasso, is, um, he's an unsophisticated American uh, coach in, of a struggling English Premier League team. And he remembers a quote that he saw when he was uh, younger that said this. It said, be curious, not judgmental. Be curious, not judgmental. And he, and he goes on to explain that curious people ask questions to learn about people rather than just making easy assumptions. Curious people let a person's life and actions speak for themselves rather than rumors and hearsay. And it's, it's good advice for life. It's also good advice for approaching the Bible and approaching the life of Jesus. See, the first people that we meet in this section today, the first characters, are not curious. They're the opposite. They are contrarian. They are the, the Jews from Jerusalem in verse 19. Now, it's not all Jews, because obviously John the Baptist, Jesus himself, John the writer, they're all, everyone in the story is, is Jewish. So when it's talking about the Jews from Jerusalem, it's talking about the leaders, the leadership, the elites, if you were. Um, those people were those who were trying to discredit both John the Baptist and later Jesus. They looked at him, they looked at the ministry as, as, as rogue and unsophisticated. These, these men are lawbreakers. And so when they asked John, who are you? It's more like that undertone of, who do you think you are? How dare you come out and, 
and, and, and, and baptize people? What authority do you have to do this? They're there to put a stop to what he's doing. They want to control him. And, and here's what I want you to notice about the eyewitness testimony of John the Baptist here. He's, he, he knows he's dealing with people who don't have a curious heart. They're not there to listen and learn. They don't want to believe the truth. And, and maybe you know similar people in your life who are just completely uninterested in hearing about Jesus or hearing the truth of the gospel. And maybe once you were one of those people. John's response to them, though, is exactly the same as if they were genuinely curious. What does he do? He just gives them Jesus. He just gives them Jesus. Here's how the conversation goes. Question, who are you? I'm not Jesus. I'm not Messiah. Okay, then who are you? Are you Elijah? No. Are, are, are you the prophet like Moses? Also, no. Here's who I am. I'm the guy that gets to point to Jesus. That's all you need to know about me. I point to Jesus. That's my job. He's the dude everyone's waiting for. I'm not. Uh, so far, John has said, not much. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And these guys are clearly frustrated, not out of curiosity, but because they want him. They're trying to get him to incriminate himself. They're trying to get him in trouble. They want to have a reason to tell people to ignore him. And John does not give him the reason. What's he do? Again, he points straight to Jesus. Look at verse 24. He quotes Isaiah first, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, about himself and his ministry. He says, here's who I am. I am a voice. Just one voice. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way for him, for the Lord. That's a reference to Jesus. John is somehow, in what he's doing, he's setting the scene, clearing the stage for Jesus to come in. See, John was out in the wilderness. He was living and ministering far outside of the city, outside of populated areas of Israel, camped out next to a, a water hole in the bush, and, and, and he's baptizing people there, which was a bit weird. Baptism was not a common thing in that day. It wasn't a common thing in Jewish practice. It was, it was really normally reserved for people who wanted to convert. So non-Jews, Gentiles who wanted to convert and be Jews through conversion would sometimes be baptized. There were other sort of like cleansing rituals for those who had had a, like skin diseases. They would go and, and be washed, purified ritually, but not baptism in the way that we think of it today. And so when John's baptizing here out in the wilderness, people are going, what, is, what are you doing? What is the meaning of this? We don't understand. You're a random dude wearing, we know from other parts of the Bible, that he's wearing animal skins. And he's living out in the desert, and he's doing this ritual. I mean, honestly, you can, you can probably understand, if you put yourself in the shoes of people, thinking that this guy is like a little bit crazy. Like maybe he's out there to start a cult, right? Like if you, had, if you knew of somebody that was living out in the bush here, like wearing animal clothes and baptizing people, you'd probably think cult, right? And that's what people are thinking of him. And they're asking these questions, but they're really just trying to stop him rather than actually trying to learn. In verse 26, after being asked again who gave him the right to baptize Jews, John once again turns the spotlight off of himself and onto Jesus. He says, I'm just baptizing with water. In other words, this really isn't a huge deal, guys, because there's someone coming who is greater than me. Uh, 
Back in the day, most men, most Jewish men, wore sandals. Um, and they'd obviously get dirty, very dirty, quickly. Um, so if, um, if you were a rich dude, um, you would have a servant in your house that their job, one of their jobs, was to actually take off your sandals so you didn't have to touch the dirt and everything else that you tracked in from outside. That was a slave's job. And so John here, when he's talking about Jesus, notice what he says. He says, I am this guy who's coming, this Jesus, I'm not even worthy He's so much greater than me. I'm not even worthy to be like the slave that would take his shoes off. That's what he's here. And, and I am not even qualified to be his slave. This guy, this is what he believes to be about Jesus. And, and, and this is where you start to think, if, you're th- you know, if you came out there thinking this guy's starting a cult, one of the hallmarks of people who go out to you know, remote places to start cults is that they make everything all about themselves. They put themselves at the very center of the, of the teaching and of the power structure of the organization that they're trying to found. Not John. Every time John opens his mouth, what's he doing? He's taking himself out of the center and putting Jesus there. Jesus, who hasn't even appeared on the scene, he's like, don't look at me. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Look at Jesus. This is John's testimony so far. He says, I'm not the one you're looking for. Jesus is. And Jesus towers over every other human. He's that good. He's that worthy. I'm just here to prepare people to meet him, to get the obstacles out of the way for anyone who is curious, anyone who's humble enough to come looking. See, life is too short to not be curious, to not ask questions that you actually want the answer to, to be contrarian, to hold on so tightly to power and position and influence that you'd look at Jesus as a threat. Be curious, as John is saying, and then one day you'll be convinced. At the end of John's gospel, there's this, a beautiful scene, and we'll get there maybe in a year or so, where Jesus' disciples, they're not with him. They're out on the boat fishing. That was their occupation. And they see Jesus on the shore, far away. And they, they realize it's him. And, and, and as soon as Peter recognizes him, he just jumps into the water and starts uh, swimming uh, to shore to see him. And when they get there, um, you know, they had, he had helped, Jesus had sort of miraculously helped them get this big haul of fish. And, uh, they, and then he invites them to sit down and have breakfast with him over the fire on the shore. And, and John tells us when they got there, it says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew. They were convinced it was the Lord. They'd been with him day after day. They'd been with him through difficult things, the tragedy of his death, and the the euphoria of his resurrection. They'd been through it all. They knew that believing in him was the only path to real life, to abundant life, to eternal life. And, And so they'd gone from being curious about him to being convinced. And see, here's the thing. For any of us, if you stick with Jesus long enough, you stay curious long enough, you'll be convinced too. And if you want to be convinced, you've just got to start being curious. Here's what makes a person want to stick with Jesus over time. It's when you come to realize that he's the only one who has the medicine that you need to live. The only one who has the medicine that you need to live. If you want to be cured, 
you have to stick with the one who understands your disease. And that's really point number two in this message. Let me explain. When, when John the Baptist finally sees Jesus coming to where he is, baptizing people, he turns to the crowd and he addresses them. He gets their attention. He's preparing the way. He's helping them to understand who this guy Jesus is. And the first title that he gives to Jesus is this one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the line that is the transition from the ministry of John the Baptist at the center to Jesus becoming the center, the main character. And it changes everything about how humans come to have a relationship with God. Uh, Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie, she traces the story of what she calls the story of the Lamb from Genesis to Revelation. That's the whole Bible. She says the whole Bible can be summarized and told as the story of the Lamb. Um, the story itself was written, if you remember, before the foundation of the world. And it, it starts playing out just after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. The first thing that God does in response to them, if you remember the story, is that he kills an animal, perhaps a lamb or a goat, but he takes the skin of that animal and makes covering for them, clothing for them. He sends them out with the skin and the blood of an animal on their body. So begins the story of the lamb who covers human sin and human shame. Then if you remember Abraham, at just the right time, God provides a grown-up lamb, a ram, to be the substitute for the life of Isaac. God provided one lamb for the life of one man. Then at Passover, on the night before the Israelites fled from slavery in Egypt, God tells each family to kill one lamb, eat it, and paint the blood of the lamb on the doorframe to cause death to pass over that house. It's one lamb for the life of one family. And then every year on the Day of Atonement in the nation of Israel, God's people would, the high priest would kill a lamb and take it into the temple and sacrifice it, offer it as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. One lamb for one nation. And now John the Baptist locks eyes with Jesus in that moment. And look what he says. He says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins not of one man, not of one family, not of one nation, but the whole world. This is the story of the Lamb. This is how God has chosen to take away the sins of those who believe in him by taking the penalty for those sins on himself. And all the curious people who heard John say this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, might then start to think, maybe just maybe the Roman occupation is not the biggest problem we're facing. Maybe the fact that we are struggling a little bit to put food on the table, or maybe the fact that we haven't had enough rainfall and the, the harvest, the wheat crop isn't as good as we'd like it to be, maybe those, those are real problems, but they're not the biggest problem that we face. Maybe the conflict I'm having with my, my spouse or my child or my neighbor next door, maybe those, those things hurt and they're hard, but they're not the biggest problem that I face. Maybe the real problem, the cause of all the heartache and all the sin and all the death, or sorry, of all the, the cause of all the heartache is in fact sin and death. There have been lots of people in history that have come onto the scene as political liberators, as 
innovators, as entrepreneurs, and philanthropists, as mindful declutterers. And some succeed, others fail. None of them get to the root of the problem, which is that every person who's ever drawn breath, every person has sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. And we need medicine that fixes that. We need medicine that's strong enough to conquer death itself. And that medicine is a person. In verse 30, John won't let us forget that Jesus isn't just a man with a big heart who, who wants to die for his friends. He is the Word who has existed from the very beginning. He is God. God against whom all of our sin is directed the only one who is perfectly holy, God who lives in unapproachable light, he is the one who entered into his creation, entered into darkness to take the darkness away. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. And, and John the Baptist describes his whole life's mission in that one verse. He said, that's why I baptize. That's why I live in the desert. That's why I preach. Because I want people to see and believe in him and have life in his name. That's what a witness does. That's what a witness does. He's like a, a good ambulance driver. He wants to get the patient to where the medicine is, where the physician is, and then get out of the way. Next week, one of our state's very best ambulance drivers is going to be preaching to you guys. And I can commend to you that um, when Tyson talks about what Jesus, uh, when he talks about Jesus, that's what he does. He makes it all about Jesus. He and he alone is where the healing is. Because the disease is sin and death that comes from our separation from God. And God came to earth precisely to deal with that disease. To defeat sin and bring death to his knees and to bring you home. The final three verses of our passage, starting in verse 32, are, are, are John's account of Jesus' baptism. Now, in John's version, there's no, there's no story of, him going, of Jesus going under the water and, and getting wet. He did. He just doesn't record it that way. He gives uh, more just the, the meaning of what happened. All we see is this, the dove, the bird, that represents God the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven and resting on Jesus. All the commentators on this passage, they agree about this, what is, how this is significant. Is it because up until now, the Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit all through the Old Testament. He makes lots of appearances. Um, King David, for example, was filled for a time with the Holy Spirit. So were many of the prophets when they spoke. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. But then when their mission was complete, when they finished doing what they needed power for, the Holy Spirit sort of fades in, into the background. But here, the Spirit comes down and rests or remains on Jesus. John says it twice. He says, this is the sign that convinced John the Baptist. When he went from being just curious to convinced that Jesus was the one. He saw the dove rest on Jesus, just as God told him he would, and he knows that the Spirit of God is not leaving. He's here for good. 
Now, here's some really good news. We see it in verse 33. The one who the Spirit rests on, that's Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not just going to take your sin away and then teleport back to heaven. It says he's going to baptize his people, all of them, every last one of those who believe, from the least to the greatest, with the very same Holy Spirit who rests on him. John's baptism in the water is a picture of sins being washed away. And Jesus says the time is coming when every person who believes at that very moment is not just going to be an empty jug that gets to figure out life on their own, but is going to be filled with power, with life, by the spirit of life, with a capacity for holiness by the Holy Spirit. And if this is the life you want, forgiveness, holiness, joy, power, endurance, then all you have to do is rush headlong to the one who holds the cure to your disease. And that's Jesus. John closes his message by saying, this, this is my testimony. You know, he's been on the witness stand and now he's getting ready to step down. He says, this is why I believe. And he wants you to believe too. He wants all of us to believe, whether you've been a Christian your whole life or just a week. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, your deepest problem, and then doesn't leave you empty, but sends the Holy Spirit to live in you, to give you strength to grow and change and resist sin and walk in new life. So my question for you is this. When you see the Lamb coming, who do you see? Who is Jesus? Are you like the guys we saw at the very beginning, the guys that are just want to, you know, ask questions and then have a way to, you know, excuse themselves and live life on their own? If that's you, the good news is you've still got time to change your thinking. You've still got time to repent, to acknowledge that your deepest problem is the desire that you have to save yourself and to live life on your own. That, that's, a, that's what sin is. That's your deepest problem. You can still repent and admit that you have a problem and that Christ the Lamb just might be the answer. I don't know, maybe you're confused and you, you need a little bit more time to understand who Jesus is. And if that's you, it's so good that there are so many people who would love to come around you and help you see, just like John did, help you see exactly who Jesus is. But I wonder if you're here and you're curious. You know, we Christians should never stop being curious. This isn't just about people who aren't yet Christians. This is all of us. We should never stop learning about God as he's revealed himself in Christ and in his word. Because the opposite of being curious isn't contrarian. The opposite of being curious is complacent, indifferent, just not caring, being so distracted by the world that you forget that Jesus came into the world to deal with with our deepest stuff all the way down. And that takes a lifetime to deal with that stuff. It takes a lifetime of walking with him, of being with his people, of seeing him and then becoming like him, seeing the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then walking in that reality. Who is Jesus? How you answer that question is the most important thing about you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming 
as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through sacrificing yourself for us. God, as we come to the table today, help us to remember the cost. Help us to remember that it was the joy that was before you that led you to endure a humiliating, painful death. The joy of knowing that that one day, as you were there bleeding on on the cross, as people around you mocked that, 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 that some of those very people who put you there, some of the people who abandoned you and left you there, some of the people who gambled for your clothes, one of the men crucified next to you would be one day seated around the table with you, enjoying fellowship, forgiveness, healing, life. God, help us to believe as we come to the table. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.